everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case and pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have the usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I love having a co-host, and today I'm so grateful to be joined by Kevin. I'll let him say hello and introduce himself. Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Hu. I'm one of the internal medicine residents here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Thank you, Sarah, for having me on the show today. Today, we're joined by Dr. John Perfect. Uh, John R. Perfect is a James B. Duke Professor of Medicine, Professor of Molecular Genetics and Microbiology, and Chief of Infectious Diseases at Duke University in North Carolina. His general research focus has been on cryptococcus pathogenesis and management. He also investigates other fungal infections through translational and clinical trials, and interacts as a consultant for many pharmaceutical companies in the antifungal space. Along with his basic science research, he also attends to patients at the bedside. He is president of the Mycosis Study Group, based in the USA, and president-elect of the International Society of Human and Animal Mycology. Welcome to the show, everyone. Oh, hi, this is John Perfect. Uh, Thanks, Kevin, uh, for uh, interacting with me, and it's my pleasure to come here and talk about uh, a clinical case. Yeah. Um, We do start with one sort of non-medical question, and we call ourselves a cultured podcast. So I just like to ask and kick off the show um, by seeing if there's a little piece of culture, so a movie or music or anything that you'd recommend that brings you happiness. Yeah. uh, So, Sarah, that's interesting. Um, A cultural thing that brings me happiness. Actually, it turns out that I think over... um, being here 45 years or so in this business, uh, my culture turns out to be my profession and my business kind of 24-7. I do family things, but basically uh, I'm here doing uh, research, taking care of patients, educating, administrating to a faculty of over 65 and uh, and uh, traveling uh, both uh, for educational purposes and for research purposes. So it turns out that probably my culture thing is my profession and the privilege of actually being in infectious disease and doing many different issues uh, day in and day out allows me, even at my age and stuff like that, enjoy getting up in the morning and coming to work. Uh, so I don't have any special outside activity except what I do with my family. <laughs> when you do this type of thing and you do this type of areas you are full court press on multiple different things and I I enjoy I enjoy that yeah well that's the dream to love love what you do so uh, today we we have one primary case and then just like a couple questions at the end Um, but the first sort of console question is a 66 year old male has history of hep c cirrhosis and came in with recurrent pleural effusions and so we're kind of asked to help with the infectious workup so i will let kevin start off with the case thank you sarah so you have in front of you a 66-year-old male with history of HCV cirrhosis, CKD stage 4, and insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus, who presents with six months of shortness of breath with recurrent pleural effusions. For some context, he's had chronic abdominal distension from acidic fluid accumulation secondary to his cirrhosis and is on diuretic therapy. His breathing was previously at his baseline until three months ago when he began noticing progressive shortness of breath and fatigue without any cough, orthopnea, PND, or an increase in abdominal distension or lower extremity edema. He's had no recent changes to his diuretic regimen or dietary regimen or any other medications. He's had no fevers, no chills, weight loss, night sweats, loss of appetite, or early satiety. He presented to the ED previously when these symptoms first began and was admitted for thoracentesis with subsequent improvement in his respiratory status. However, the fluid quickly reaccumulated, and he has had two additional outpatient thoracentesis in the interim. He represents now with worsening dyspnea, hypoxia requiring low-flow nasal cannula, and a recurrent left-sided pleural effusion on chest x-ray. He is admitted to the floor. Dr. Perfect, we wanted to see what you are thinking about so far. What additional information would you want to know, and what is your ID differential at this point? 
Yeah, well, thanks, Kevin. That's uh, a pretty standard case. I also not only do infectious disease, but I'm a gen med attending. Uh, I do that six weeks a year. So this sounds like bread and butter type stuff coming <laughs> into the uh, ER with plural, recurrent pleural effusions or recurrent ascites in a patient with cirrhosis uh, from previous hep C. Uh, you know, my, my first thought on this thing is that, you know, I don't have necessarily uh, any any tool now to say this is infectious disease, any pleural effusion can be, including a recurrent one. But I would say my first thought on this thing is, is that uh, he did have ascites. Um, you know, there may be a component of a CHF, but the first thing I would think about is kind of a hepatic uh, hydrothorax of some sort. Uh, although, again, on the left side, that's maybe a little less uh, common than on the right side for that. But I, uh, my first thought on that would be that this is a reaccumulation uh, recurrence of what I hate, <laughs> which is hydrothorax in a, uh, in a patient with cirrhosis. And how you deal with that? Uh, that would be my first thought on it. As far as diagnostic infectious disease wise, I don't think there's anything you can probably get really, really good on history. We'll come back to that uh, in a moment and then you'll challenge me a little bit. But um, I think at the end of the day, from an infectious disease standpoint, is I'm kind of a Willie Sutton type of rule. Uh, Willie Sutton, a bank robber a long time ago, uh, who uh, they asked him why he robbed banks and he says, well, that's because that's where the money's at. Uh, and so I'm going to do the Willie Sutton rule on this thing and say, hmm, that pleural fusion is where the money's at. Uh, so the diagnostic thing I would do is, again, drain it, uh, which will make him feel a little bit better. And two is become much more careful at analyzing that fluid and make sure that uh, we're not missing something besides kind of uh, an hepatic uh, hydrothorax. Are there any specific questions you would be digging for in the social history? Well... I, I think again on all these things, uh, where he can, where, where he's been, what kind of experience he's had as far as uh, epidemiology and history, travel history, and stuff like that. Because again, we're going to eventually get into um, the question around infection that's in the lungs. So again, you kind of want to know where he's from. You want to know maybe his exposures and stuff like that, his PPD status in the past, uh, uh, geographically where he's located, uh, where he's been. Uh, uh, those are things that from an infectious disease standpoint you can do. I, I'm not even sure where he's at right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, But yes, from an infectious disease standpoint, you should always try to understand the travel history, the best yeah. that you can and the geographical exposures. Here's some additional history. His HCV was treated with lentipasvir sapospifir with sustained virologic response for 20 months at the time of his current presentation. And his diabetes is currently insulin dependent and unfortunately not well controlled. His most recent A1C was 9% and he's had elevated fasting and postprandial blood sugars. Um, the diabetes was presumed to be the cause of his CKD with baseline creatinine around 2.2. Ethnically, he's Latino and was born and raised in Puerto Rico prior to moving to the mainland United States in his 20s. Over the last four decades, he's been traveling back and forth from the island, visiting friends and family, though it's been several years since he's gone back. And currently, in terms of an occupation, he works in the food industry as a chef at a restaurant in Boston. In Puerto Rico, he had a job on a farm raising fighting roosters, taking care of the birds and cleaning their barns. There was a period of time three decades prior when he was consuming alcohol heavily, though he's been abstinent since then. He occasionally inhaled cocaine during that time as well, but has never injected drugs intravenously. And while he's not been sexually active for the last decade, he has had unprotected intercourse in the past with multiple female partners. He does not have any pets. He enjoys gardening and used to be an avid hiker. But over the last few years with his chronic fatigue and liver disease, he's found that he just doesn't have the energy to do this anymore. Here are some additional labs that we got on admission. His white blood cell count is 16, his hemoglobin is 14, and his platelet count is 120,000. His protein total is 8, and his LDH is 320. This is in the serum. His creatinine is 2.1, his urine culture was collected, and his blood culture was collected, and both are pending at this time. A CT scan was performed in the ED before he came up to the floor, just given his mild hypoxia and shortness of breath, and the scan notes nodules and multiple foci in both lungs, greater in the periphery, and the pleural effusion is redemonstrated. 
Uh, thoracentesis is performed with a pleural fluid protein of 6, an LDH of 300, red blood cells of 4,000 per microliter, white blood cells of 286 per microliter, neutrophils at 2%, and lymphocytes at 66%, 0% eosinophils. His adenosine deaminase was 6, the pH of the pleural fluid was 7.48, and the gram stain had few white blood cells and no organisms. Bacterial, fungal, and AFB cultures are sent on the fluid and are all pending at this time. Now that you have these details about the history, as well as some more imaging and laboratory findings, how has your differential diagnosis changed or narrowed? Yeah, so Kevin, that's a, a good question. Now that we have some information, I said it was the Willie Sutton rule, go to where the action's at. You've gone to where the action's at, and um, now we've we got to respond to that. Um, and uh, as I look on it, there are multiple things there that um, really kind of changed my initial impression of hepatic uh, uh, hydrothorax and stuff like that. And really, what you have there is several things that are um, different, and that's number one, this is an exudate whether you use lights criteria, whatever you want to use, the high protein, the high LDH. This is not uh, ascites in the, in the plural space. Uh, this is something else. This is now you know, I'm going to have to push down a little bit on the question around infection, which is kind of why I'm here, or <laughs> maybe, uh, in fact, uh, maybe uh, cancer. Uh, that um, Remember, the uh, patient had uh, hep C, uh, uh, cirrhosis, et cetera, et cetera. He's probably at higher incidence for uh, for uh, liver cancer, and maybe that's up there and in, uh, in the plural space. So I think what I'd say to that is, um, yeah, this is new information. This is why we get this information. <laughs> A lot of times we get this before I even come on the rounds in the morning as they're admitted at night because they go from the ER to the uh, to their bad but in process they go through the ct scanner or the mr scanner or they get a tap and stuff like that so this is morning um, uh, information so to speak uh, the other thing that I thought was important, not only that we now have an exudative uh, uh, effusion, is that um, the CT scan is kind of interesting to me a little bit. Um, uh, i got to start thinking about differential diagnosis uh, in the infectious arena because it, it has kind of an exudative, uh, recurrent exudative effusion. So the CT with nodules uh, perks me up a little bit. It perks me up a little bit and saying, oh, maybe it's in my field, uh, uh, which is fungal infections. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, maybe it's uh, maybe it's tuberculosis. Um, the ADA was pretty low and uh, makes it less likely. Uh, I am also have to think a little bit about uh, if this exudate is really a bad infection, uh, with a bacteria, for instance, the white counts are pretty low here. The 286 or whatever, mostly mononuclear cells, suggests more of a chronic process and not that acute inflammatory process you see with bacteria. Your gram stain was negative. Uh, I think I'm going to have to start thinking about... Um, tuberculosis or maybe uh, mycosis, um, uh, fungal infection. So um, I, I was interested. The white count's a little bit elevated. Again, a, a factor that may suggest uh, infection, but uh, really no other physiological things to infection. I think that what I'd say from the history of being in um, back and forth in Puerto Rico, I tried to think uh, during that time, I mean, maybe being in Puerto Rico and a little higher incidence of tuberculosis than maybe in the States. I mean, today in the United States, my goodness gracious, the amount of TB we have is getting lower and lower and lower, and that's a good thing. And, but for us, actually, uh, coming from the southeastern part of the United States, and you got nodules in the lung, and you got a pleural effusion, you're going to have to think about fungal infections, um, which is you know kind of why you brought me on here. And uh, also, um, the issue of having that, what kind of fungal infections are we talking about? And does that link up at all to his geographical areas, which is Puerto Rico, U.S., et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think when I look at this thing, I remember there's probably about three different fungi that we need to actually think about with nodules in the lung and a pleural effusion that's exudative. Number one, I, I will put up there in this day and age, and I promise you, please don't call mucor a black fungus. I'm a medical mycologist. 
It hurts <laughs> me to hear that on the news and stuff like that. I understand it produces scars and invades into tissue, and that can be dark or black. But the but the fungus is not black. There are black fungi, and they're phaeohyphomycosis. And so I, I put that up for all the teaching type people. Don't please don't call them the mucor uh, black fun fungus. Now that said, though, I have to respect the fact that he was kind of poorly controlled diabetic, and start to think about lung infection and stuff like that. Could this have been a mucor type of infection? Well, uh, I, I would probably put that out to the side, um, mainly because um, it could occur, multiple lesions that could occur. We've seen this, of course, in neutropenic patients where you have multiple lesions. In fact, it, there was one of the distinguishing points of mucor versus aspergillus in neutropenic patients that more nodules were associated with mucor versus not. So I think I, I have to put it out there that it could produce nodules, could produce a, uh, a, um, uh, an empyema or, a, or at least a, a fusion. But again, and there was some peripheralness to it, but it wasn't really linked up to that pleural effusion where mucor would just kind of burrow its way into tissue and, uh, and cause uh, necrosis and infarction and stuff. Didn't seem like that CT scan said that. So then you come to the other two fungi that may be up there, and I'm going to disregard coxie because he's not really in coxie country but who knows where coxie country may be with global warming in another 15 or 20 years you know you never know what may happen that you may get coxie in chicago someday uh but anyway that's that's another story uh but geographically they haven't been in that area uh at least the history that you gave me so then it comes down to what i am very attracted by is the issue around um the issue around the exposure to chickens. Now, I, this case is kind of set up a little bit for that, uh, that uh, what organisms are around chickens and chicken coops and various things. And his history is he's around, around a lot of that stuff and probably manure and various things. And so there are two fungi that I've seen really come out of that. Uh, one is cryptococcus and the other is histoplasma. So I put both of them up there kind of equal. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to get a lot of understanding of exactly where the exposures are for either histo or crypto uh, in a lot of these patients. Uh, uh, and you can always ask about that, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of patients, you just never get this thing. But you're setting me up where surely he's been around areas where there have been a lot. Of, and in the in the guano of, uh, of chickens and uh, there is um, there's cryptococcus, there's histo, and you know I've, I've seen multiple people. The classic story is the pigeon breeders. The pigeon breeders, uh, when they went back and looked serologically with antibodies, now with antibodies, uh, a high percent of the pigeon breeders had antibodies to cryptococcus, so they are exposed to it. Remember, the pathophysiology of crypto is probably you get infected through the lungs, and it sits there like tuberculosis in a lymph node complex for years and years and years before eventually you may become immune suppressed and then it kind of reactivates. So that's, there are, there are cases of acute disease with pneumonias and symptoms, but the vast majority of them are asymptomatic. And I suspect many people in the southeastern part of the United States probably have had crypto. We don't have a good skin test, so you can't determine that like you can with histo. Uh, but I think the important thing that from you to give back to this type of discussion is that we change the game a little bit. We we now ha have to explain this, uh, this exudative effusion, this recurrent exudative effusion in uh, a cirrhotic patient where initially I thought this could be just fluid accumulating uh, from ascites, et cetera, et cetera. That's just not the formula here. So, And now I have a CT scan that has nodules in it. Uh, is that cancer or is that uh, some type of chronic infection with fungi? And so that's that's where I'm at right now with uh, with the um, with your presentation so using and I did use a little bit of your history uh, of, of being exposed to certain areas and stuff like that that would be enriched for histo and for crypto the pleural fluid culture grows cryptococcus neoformans a serum cryptococcal antigen was positive with a titer of 1 to 40 can you start by giving us a quick overview about cryptococcal disease and what, if any, additional workup do you suggest in this situation? Yeah, remember there are two major species of cryptococcus, cryptococcus neoformans and cryptococcus gadii. Um, 
east of the Mississippi. Rarely do we see gadii. There was a big outbreak of gadii in the northwestern part of the uh, country. Um, it is uh, extending itself a little bit more. And now we have some little bit of outbreaks now in actually Florida places like that. So global warming is making an impact here. Although generally the organisms that you see coming out of um, out of east of the Mississippi or Cryptococcus neoformans. Also, if I'm going to believe that this might have been exposed to chickens and stuff like that, uh, gadii is seen in trees, from eucalyptus trees to other type of deciduous trees. Uh, uh, Cryptococcus neoformans can be in bird guano and stuff like that, but gadii almost never is. So if I believe that this exposure that they had, this is going to be Cryptococcus neoformans. Now, just to tell you a little bit about the thing, uh, the infection in a kind of quick pathophysiology, I've already discussed this a little bit, is it's inhaled, it probably gets in, may have some symptoms, may not, gets in a lymph node complex in the um, in the lung. We know that from years and years ago where we did autopsies actually here at Duke um, 60, 70 years ago on, on patients that um, had car accidents in the southeastern part of the United States, young people. And then they did sections through the lung, they could see little cryptococcomas. And so we know that it kind of sits in very similar to tuberculosis, very similar to histone. The difference is, is that you can see gone complexes with tuberculosis. They're kind of big enough that you can sometimes see them on scan. And uh, histo loves to loves to uh, calcify, so you can actually see it on the X-ray. Crypto is small, and it's uh, and it doesn't calcify as much, so it just sits there. And um, we don't have a good skin test. So what happens is, once you get that thing, you get you, you, over time, uh, if you become immune suppressed, HIV infection put on steroids, um, some of the new fancy drugs like abrutinib. <laughs> uh, we've seen multiple cases of that. Uh, so there are times when you then reactivate. Now, the uh, thing that you have here is uh, from a clinical standpoint uh, with cryptococcus, uh, diagnostically, it can produce every type of lung lesion you can describe. Uh, you know, look at a review I've done, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's massive. So there's nothing there. There's nothing there in that scan that says this is absolutely cryptococcus, either can be or not, and that includes pleural fusions, et cetera, et cetera. That said, I live in the southeastern part of the United States. We crack chest every so often for people with uh, nodules that kind of grow a little bit and stuff like that. And I, my clinic is full of people coming in with little cryptococcomas that have been fortunately biopsied and not being lung cancer, uh, but being cryptococcus. So uh, this is not an atypical situation for um, for the presentation to be pretty asymptomatic with nodules in the lung. Pleural fusions, yeah, I mean, if you broke open like you apparently did and got into the pleural space and stuff like that, that can occur. Um, I think the other thing to tell you a little bit about cryptococcus is um, the, the importance of the immune system to these things. And we can come back to that a little bit later uh, about the um, when, what do you do and where, where, where you're at as far as your risk factor for dissemination. Um, it is heavily linked to um, the, um, the immune system. Now, what I say at this time, I've got this patient in front of me. I got cryptococcus here. And I think what the important thing is, is it spread outside the lung and the pleural space. And that's where what I would do with this type of setting with this type of patient. Now, this is important because the, the host is very, very important to make some of these decisions. But I will need to know whether the organism has spread outside of that local area. As, because if it's in the lung itself, we'll treat it differently than if it's disseminated. Now, with you and your patient, uh, uh, has it disseminated? Well, okay, it might have. It's got a serum cryptococcal antigen that is positive. You know, years ago, I did this a lot, trying to put a lot of polysaccharide down the lungs of animals and stuff like that. And you had to put a lot down there, and you still the blood, the blood was not uh, serum positive. Uh, it's a big, big molecule. So anytime I kind of see it in the bloodstream, it suggests that maybe it left the house, uh, that it went uh, to other places. But uh, it worries me a little bit more than than I can actually precisely tell you that they've disseminated or not. However, the critical feature 
the critical feature here of all this discussion and stuff like that of the workup is that this organism, which I have now studied for 44 years, um, goes to the central nervous system. It has a propensity to go to the central nervous system. It's the most common cause of meningitis in Africa by far. Uh, second place is not even close. So we know that we have to approach the central nervous system in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes it can be moderately asymptomatic as it kind of starts up and does its thing. Over years, we classically said that if they have crypto isolated from the lung, we would, which is a common place where it's either seen or cultured, we should do a lumbar puncture to rule out central nervous system disease. And um, over time, we really changed that a little bit, and you'll see the guidelines have changed that a little bit, is that an immune-compromised host, now that's a whole different story of who is immune compromised or not. Is that diabetic immune compromised? Is that cirrhotic immune compromised? Those type of patients actually probably should have a lumbar puncture to rule out central nervous system disease because we treat that tremendously differently than we do just localized lung disease. A patient that's not immune suppressed <laughs> I got a couple of them here that because uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not easy. I can, we can talk all we want about in guidelines and stuff like that, and then you got to be in the clinic and you got to actually figure out how you're going to get an LP on these patients that are completely asymptomatic. If, if they're symptomatic, if anybody's symptomatic, have any type of CNS type of stuff, they should have an LP done. But an asymptomatic person like this guy seems to be pretty asymptomatic. Um, it's whether he's immune comp compromised or not, whatever that definition is. In this particular patient, I would say there's a couple things that concern me a little bit. Uh, and like I say, if they're not, if they're immune competent, we will many times not do the LP. We will just treat them for local disease. This particular patient, I'd say, falls in the first category, which is immune compromised. I say that for a couple reasons. Number one, he's diabetic, and that's tricky. Uh, diabetes is always up with people with crypto. There's a lot of it and how much it is. He does not necessarily have any immune suppressants on and stuff like that. But I think the area that concerns me the most is the fact that he's cirrhotic. Um, I will tell you, and we'll get, uh, I'm moving fast down the line here on this thing, but uh, and we may come back to it again. But the biggest risk factor of doing poorly with cryptococcosis by far is not HIV, it's not a transplant, it's a patient with severe liver disease that gets cryptococcosis and disseminate cryptococcosis. Mortality rates at our place and you can have multiple articles where this is the worst because what happens a lot of times is they get the disseminated crypto at a time when uh, the function of the liver is not well. And the combination of that and the treatments and stuff like that, it's, it's, it can be a very terrible outcome. So in this particular person, I don't even want to get there. We have a serum antigen that's positive. We've got crypto growing in a pleural fluid and probably in the lung. I'm going to make sure they don't have it in the central nervous system because right now I've got a chance. I've got a chance of getting this thing under control. If he had gone on, I, he, I suspect over time, like an HIV patient, he will eventually disseminate into the central nervous system. And one of the problems, as you all you know, in this particular case is sometimes that's hard to pick up a little bit because the patients don't produce a lot of fever. Well, a lot of patients don't do that. And so and uh, uh, cirrhosis is not necessarily a non-fever type of producer. But the other thing is some of the CNS things can be maxed a little bit, uh, you know, with hepatic encephalopathy and things like that. And so I can tell you that the diagnosis of disseminated crypto, cryptococcal meningitis, in a, in a uh, cirrhotic patient, can be quite prolonged from the time that they start to first have symptoms. So this is a very important case of trying to think about cryptococcus and that differential diagnosis and getting on it earlier rather than later because later is not going to be a pretty picture. Now, as far as the diagnostic things, I'm going to be kind of simple here, um, I think. Uh, um, I think I want an LP uh, to rule out uh, disease. Uh, yeah, maybe a blood culture. It's easy enough to do. Uh, and I, I, I do want um, I do want an HIV test. 
Okay, I almost all patients that have crypto isolated from any site, uh, I'll, I'll get an HIV test, mainly so that I can get some appreciation. Whether I do a CD4 count or not, that's kind of up to um, uh, personal preference. But HIV is not, because if they're HIV positive, I'm going to, of course, do different things, uh, and I'm going to treat them a little bit differently. But other than that, we've you know tried to search to find cancers and lymphomas and various things like that, and passed uh, you know some basic tests and X-rays that have already been done in this patient. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to find that uh, most of the time. So the, those are the crucial workup things. I think the critical nature, I would say, right now in this particular patient, because of his risk, I want to make sure he doesn't have anything in the central nervous system right now. It changes my therapies and my prognosis. Thank you, Dr. Perfect. So in this situation, there was no evidence of CNS disease with a subsequent LP. His CSF prag was negative, and an MRI of the brain was actually also obtained, and there weren't any notable findings on imaging. His fungal blood cultures remain negative, and given that he did not have evidence of two non-contiguous sites of infection and no evidence of CNS disease with this low, tighter cryptococcal antigen, this was actually treated as non-disseminated cryptococcal pulmonary infection. Can you explain the distinction between localized versus disseminated infection and how this would impact your approach to antimicrobial therapy? Yeah, Kevin, so very good. That's exactly what I would have done, uh, which is the LP, and great, it looked pretty negative. Uh, have I ever seen a person have a negative LP and have cryptococcal meningitis? When you've been in the business for 45 years, yeah, yeah, I've seen everything. Uh, and occasional patients, occasional patients will have normal LPs and have cultures that are positive. But those are unique type circumstances. And I only want to say that never, you know, you, you just can't say 100% it's clean. But, but from a practical standpoint, it is. The antigen is negative. There's no cells. You know, the, the, this is good. And that's what we're going to say, that... Two things. We did this LP because we put him into a uh, immune compromised group versus a immune competent group. We, we did that. Now we're at the stage. It's just what you said. Is it disseminated disease or is it uh, localized disease? And I think at this stage, with what you have right now, the workup you have, I am going to agree with you that this is um, this is localized disease or at least localized disease within uh, the lung. There's not a non-continuous site. The LP is negative. Now, the reason for that is, is you, you do two different things, right? If they have localized disease to the lung, particularly in a guy that's already got a creatinine of 2.1, uh, that you really don't want to expose to any polyenes and things, uh, you would treat this patient with fluconazole or, uh, as, as, as you've done, uh, as a pulmonary infection and treat him for six months to a year. If he had evidence of disseminated disease, like that LP, then he's going to go through the kind of steps that we do of induction therapy, consolidation, and suppression. Two weeks of, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know who uses amphotericin B desoxycholate today, but we sure don't. Uh, you just can't. The patients are too sick, and you just can't deal with the nephrotoxicity and stuff. So we use ambisone. The guidelines are pushing more and more towards that. Um, and so we use ambisone and flucytosine, combination therapy for disseminated disease, particularly meningitis. Been proven multiple times in Africa that it's it's the best combination. That's what should be used, particularly here where we actually have access to flucytosine, uh, where Africa does not. Uh, and they do that usually for two weeks. It's, that's kind of prescribed that there can be all kinds of issues, concern about increased endocrinal pressure and everything else, an iris that we might get to in a moment. Um, that should be okay. Culture should be negative at the end of two weeks, and then they're put on step-down kind of consolidation type of fluconazole. In Africa, they really want to use 800 milligrams equivalent. Uh, in the States, uh, the guidelines say 400. Personally, I believe 800 is fine. I just push hard. Uh, again, near particular patient, the dosing will be changed a little bit because of renal dysfunction, but kind of go that route, be aggressive with the fluconazole for eight weeks, and then uh, switch off to a suppressive regimen of two to 400 milligrams for a year. All patients with cryptococcal meningitis, not all, but 
high, high percent of them will relapse in that first year if they're going to relapse. And so that's why we kind of extend it out to, to one year. Fluconazole is easy to give with uh, low toxicity, low cost and stuff. Um, so the important issue to this that you're asking is uh, disseminated disease versus not. And the treatments are a, a stage type of treatment with a polling put in here versus uh, local therapy, uh, not local therapy, but local infection with, with uh, fluconazole used. This patient was started on renally dose-adjusted fluconazole at 200 milligrams oral daily with an intended duration of one year and discharged with planned ID outpatient follow-up. In follow-up, he has been doing well without any reaccumulation of the pleural effusion, and his serum cryptococcal antigen titer was actually followed with a decrease from 1 to 40 to 1 to 16 to 1 to 10 and eventually to undetectable levels within four months of fluconazole initiation. Okay, so that's a really, really good response. I think uh, the story is excellent. We did the right things. Um, and uh, But I would like to caution the, the viewers and stuff like that. It doesn't always go quite that nice. Uh, and what I mean by in the antigen titer, the serum antigen titer, that one really went nicely down and the way it went. Trust me, there's a whole mess of this day pretty zero fast, particularly in the serum. CSF, a lot of times they will come down. And so we don't recommend uh, absolutely following uh, serum uh, cryptococcal antigens in treatment. A lot of physicians do that. And, and you know, it's okay. You do it, then you've got to deal with it, if you, whatever the results are. In your particular case, yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm doing the right thing. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of them out there that just stay there, 1 to 16 or 1 to uh, uh, 256, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you got to be careful, that, particularly in the uh, serum, and we don't actually recommend necessarily following that. Um, the other thing, I think the serum titer came down nice. That's great. I, I want to emphasize that the serum... And the CSF antigen titers are helpful. First of all, the diagnostic test for that is incredible. I mean, this is the this is um, probably the premier diagnostic for uh, for uh, fungal infections. It is a simple test. It is a it actually uh, could be a, a on-site test. Uh, it is. You and I could do it. Uh, we, we could do it while I'm talking here and stuff like that. Dip a stick in. It's dipstick technology. It's incredibly sensitive. Uh, it's a lateral flow assay that we use today. Um, well, the other thing you ought to be a little careful of when you're following antigen titers is some of them may do it by latex agglutination or ELISA and then, a, then, a, then the uh, lateral flow. So <laughs> they may use different things. That's why it's not great to try to be precise on the antigen, the antigen titers and stuff like that. You get, you get, you get messed up a little bit in some patients. But the important thing is, and it will come maybe to the next thing we talk about, is this is a very simple, easy test, cheap to do any place. And now even in point of care type stuff, it could be done. Uh, and, um, uh, it does have prognostic, not only diagnostic factors that are very, very important, but also sometimes prognostic factors. We don't do quantitative counts in the CSF like a lot of, in Africa when they do studies to see how many burden of organisms. But you do get some some potential insight into how many organisms are around uh, by the antigen titers. High antigen titers, greater than 25, 60 or so, uh, is um, is probably a high burden of organisms and prognostically uh, worrisome and stuff like that when you're going through and treat the patient. This one, 1 to 40, was so-so. Uh, so his burden of organisms was so-so. <laughs> it wasn't high, it wasn't low, it was kind of sitting in there. Um, but as we talked about, it always perks me up. Um, the vast majority, in fact, the last several cases I saw in clinic in the last couple months, uh, like this, not this patient, but they were just nodules that were operated on for cancer and stuff like that. It came back. Uh, they were... Um, they, they were antigen negative. <laughs> so whenever I get antigen positive, I say, eh, well, I know he left the lung anyway because he actually went into the pleural space. But uh, it just perks me up a little bit. But, uh, again, you did the right thing. You adjusted the dose uh, for renal dysfunction. I'm not too concerned. Uh, I could have used 400 and, uh, and maybe that would be equivalent to 800. But uh, I'm a little agnostic with the dosing of fluconazole. I do pay attention to the renal dysfunction. But again, um, I have a leeway not to be too concerned about really high doses, particularly in, in, in central nervous system disease. 
Okay, so I just wanted to end with a very brief case to help think about other perspectives on cryptococcal infection, since uh, the patient that Kevin presented had isolated pulmonary disease. And I just don't think we can have an introduction to cryptococcus without talking about meningitis a little bit more, even though I know you've already touched on it. Um, But let's say we have a 35-year-old male this patient comes in with a diagnosis of HIV. He had recently moved into the state, had not been on ART with a CD4 count of 20 and a viral load of 800,000 copies. Although he established care, there was a delay in being able to get him on ART and seen in clinic. And unfortunately, in the interim, he is diagnosed with cryptococcal meningitis. He had a headache and stiff neck and fever, and ultimately CSF cultures grew cryptococcus neoformans. I'm going to step back from this case just a, a little bit to think about cryptococcal infection in a patient with HIV a little bit more generally. We've talked about in our HIV series about how we probably don't need to screen every patient, every asymptomatic patient with HIV for cryptococcus. And our US DHHS HIV guidelines recommend a pre-ART cryptococcal antigen screening only if the CD4 count is less than 100. But I suspect there's probably a little bit of variability on that. And people may, in certain scenarios, screen more frequently than that. So I thought I'd see what your thought process is on thinking about cryptococcal antigen screening in asymptomatic patients with HIV. I know people going to argue back and forth on this thing. What it does, it really depends on kind of where you're at and what the incidence of crypto in the environment is. Uh, if you're in Africa right now, uh, people CD4 counts under 100, under 50 uh, coming in, you know, 6% or so of, of people will be crag positive. Um, that's an area where is high, high incidence. And, and we know that crag positivity uh, in HIV patients is a harbinger for potentially bad outcome, whether you're treated or not. And uh, if you're not treated, uh, you're going to get cryptococcal meningitis. It's just a matter of time if you don't have it already. So it's a great screening device, a cheap dollar, two dollar type thing. And, and many of the countries in Africa have actually uh, adopted that thing. Uh, in the States, it's a little trickier, the incidence of crypto. I mean, um, there was a study from the CDC a few years ago that showed, I guess, in the Atlanta area or something, a 3.3% incidence of CRAG positivity in the HIV population untreated. Um I think in the southeastern part of the United States, I believe it's in the environment enough that many people would not. I, if it was somebody came in, maybe it's because of me, I would get a crag because it, it, it's a simple test to do and it does have prognostic factors and therapeutic factors. If you're in Denmark and places like that where there's such a low incidence of disease, you could argue cost-benefit ratio not to do it. Uh, if you're in New England, I don't know, maybe you're on the fence a little bit. But personally, uh, the recommendations have been in some of the places that actually do a crag in a, in a person untreated with a low I'm, I'm kind of in favor of that. Now, the problem with that is, okay, you're positive now. Now you look at the patients, say, do they have symptoms or not? If they have symptoms, they get an LP. If they don't have symptoms, then the question comes up, do they need to be LP'd or not? And uh, I don't know, I, I'd probably do it uh, in the United States. In, in Africa, it's not as easy to do these LPs and stuff like that, so they have to make decisions. One of the biggest research components right now is actually what you do with these patients that are CRAG positive. And particularly uh, if they, um, depending on the titers and stuff like that, uh, people with titers greater than 160, uh, they're going to assume that they have meningitis until proven otherwise. They're, they're going to try to tap them. Uh, here in the States, like I say, it's easy, much easier for us to tap. The problem is, is if it's negative, and it's not a problem, but it, let's say it's negative, the LP is negative. How do you treat those patients? Uh, cultures, uh, you do a culture of blood, it's going to be negative, et cetera, et cetera. That's where it's been a little of a problem. First of all, I think the principle is a CRAG positive patient with a low CD4 count should be treated, even if they have negative workup. I think that's quite clear now. The question is, what is the best treatment? Because they've got a whole mess of failures in Africa now with fluconazole. 
Craig positive, may or may not have the LP. They put them on, and then they, they, they fail. So there are two studies now ongoing, uh, one with fluconazole and flucytosine as treatment for asymptomatic patients with uh, Craig positivity. Uh, and the other study is actually using a dose of ambisone on a base of fluconazole. So both those studies are being done to try to change the game a little bit because they're still failing when they put them on fluconazole by themselves. Okay, so that's the first uh, component to these things. When do you do a CRAG? When do you not? Uh, those type of patients, I think the risk is high enough. Uh, and I think in the United States, the incidence is probably high enough that uh, <laughs> for two bucks, uh, you know, I think you should do it. Yeah, and so going back to this patient, um, we have talked about how TB meningitis and cryptococcal meningitis are two key infections that would give us pause about thinking when to start ART and have a potential delay. But what we didn't really talk about is how long do we wait and, and when is the right time to start ART after we have diagnosed a patient with cryptococcal meningitis? David Bulwar uh, now it's about about seven seven years ago or so. They did a study called the Coke study that was done in Africa, and what they did was kind of try to understand when to start art therapy uh, in relationship to antifungal therapy. And uh, they um, the studies in the New England Journal, I don't know, 2014, 2015. Uh, what they showed pretty dramatically was exactly what they hypothesize wouldn't happen. Uh, they assume that giving art therapy and immune reconstitution and stuff was a good thing and uh, patients would do better with early art therapy uh, during therapy of cryptococcal meningitis. And the study convincingly showed, statistically showed, that giving therapy, giving art therapy in the first two weeks of, of uh, antifungal therapy had a worse prognosis than the patients that had delayed art therapy at five weeks or so uh, after the initial start of treatment. Okay, so I think it's quite clear right now that uh, you shouldn't start both of them at the same time. What's not as clear is when do you start the art therapy in Africa, where many of these patients may be dying from the HIV infection as you're treating the crypto infection. They want to get to it as soon as possible. So the guidelines most of the time have talked about uh, five weeks or so. When we did the guidelines years ago, we made a guess even before we knew about this uh, early death type situation of two to eight weeks, uh, two to ten weeks. We were guessing at the time, and unfortunately, we said two to ten weeks. We just got lucky that we didn't do it right at the time. But um, uh, so I think it's kind of up in the air exactly in in the U.S. where you'd start, whether it's five weeks or whether you can go to ten weeks. Personally, a lot of times we tend to do about ten weeks because by then, you know, everything's kind of sorted itself out. Patients can be treated for other things, and uh, you can delay. The important point is you can't do them both at the same time. Now, why is that? I think it's because of the other important principle that people need to realize with crypto going forward uh, is the Goldilocks paradigm of immunity. I'm simplistic on what I'm trying to do here, and crypto's in right in the middle of that. Too little immunity allows crypto to grow up and cause disease. Too much immunity can actually fight the organism too rapidly, too much, and particularly in the central nervous system where you have little areas of, uh, of uh, uh, ability to get more inflammation and uh, fluid without problems developing. Um, you, you can cause problems. And you've got to get it just right, right in between and immunity. And there, that's... Uh, God did a pretty good job of it, but we don't do a really good job of it. We can't precisely judge that. So uh, the the issue around iris, yeah. immune, uh, immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, is very important in crypto management and very, very difficult. First of all, we've done the studies, or uh, um, Jeremy Day did the studies of of not using steroids right up front like they do with tuberculosis. Uh, that's been done. It's not a good thing to do. You decrease the killing activity of the antifungals, increase morbidity, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not an option. But you do have to pay attention to immune reconstitution, inflammatory syndrome 
even if you uh, if you're an HIV patient, but you're getting antiretrovirals. If you're a transplant patient, where you're manipulating their immune system uh, with their uh, organ, and also in non-AIDS, non-transplant, all of them can have this type of thing. And it's a very tricky business for you as clinicians to actually deal with. It can happen during this time, uh, and it takes the ability at the bedside to try to understand: Is there more inflammation? Is the organism not alive? or down. Antigen titers have stabled or going down in the CSF. Cultures are negative. Um, it, it's a clinical decision that's made at the bedside, but it happens not infrequently. And, and particularly the central nervous system, you have to deal with that. And so sometimes you do get to have to put these patients on steroids. Steroids cause this disease. Steroids may have to be used to get you out of this disease. And, uh, and that's tricky. And particularly when you don't have a good diagnostic maneuver to say, oh, this is definitely Definitely iris. I mean, we just don't do the immune system well enough and type it well enough to um, to study it as well as we should to kind of understand where we're at in the in the immunity to this infection. And the other thing is, I please, 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 for everybody out there, when they're treating cryptococcal meningitis, you know, for me, I'm, I'm old-fashioned enough now and seen enough. You get cryptococcal meningitis. I think you need to be in the hospital for two weeks to get your induction therapy. The worst thing you can do is futz around on the outside, have to stop the drug for a couple days and stuff like that because renal function is out, potassium are messed up. Just give me two weeks of ambisone and flucytosine continuously, day in and day out, and then you can go out of the hospital and do whatever you want and stuff like that. Because what I've seen the biggest problem is that everyone wants to get them out of the hospital. They actually look pretty good after a couple days. But unless you've got control over that thing, you need to be there two weeks because the most important treatment, the most important treatment you can get is that first two weeks of therapy with combination therapy. And that many times has to stay in the hospital. And you start messing around with that and you stopping it for a few days. You're getting rid of the flu cytosine or reducing the dose of ambisone. That's not good. It it, 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 it it will cause issues down the line with whether it's iris or relapse of infection and stuff like that. So if I have one message to the treatment to the people out there is once you made the diagnosis of crypto, and then we didn't talk about increased intracranial pressure and lumbar punctures and all that stuff, which is another important thing to control. But give me those two weeks in the hospital and get that combination therapy and then I'll be happy with whatever else you kind of do as you sequence down the line. Yeah, that's a great way to end. I usually ask like, what is your take home? So that was a, that was a great way to, <laughs> uh, to wrap up. So uh, thank you both for coming today. Well, hopefully what I've done in the wrap up is, yeah, you got to be passionate about what you do. And yeah. uh, I happen to be passionate a little bit about cryptococcus, but I'm passionate about medicine, infectious disease and, uh, uh, I'm a big cheerleader for infectious diseases. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a great specialty. <laughs> and one it is it's, uh, the best. <laughs> kept me going even today. <laughs> Thank you again to John for sharing his knowledge and passion for Cryptococcus. Thank you to Kevin for a wonderful job writing and co-hosting. And I want to give another shout out to Kushal Vishnani who helped with writing these vignettes as well. If you like Febrile, please share the podcast with a friend or check us out on the website, febrilepodcast.com, on Twitter or on Instagram. You can find the written compliments of the audio podcast known as Consult Notes on the website, as well as tons of ID infographics. Please tweet or email me if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, or if you'd like to help with a future episode. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.